right, all right, all right. Welcome to Dr. D's Muddy Concepts, and I am Dr. D. As most of you know, I spent the majority of my nursing career as a CRNA or nurse anesthetist, and I thought I was an expert on most medications, but when I started teaching pathopharmacology and I had to relearn medications I had not seen in years, there were so many new ones out there that were so out of my wheelhouse, I found myself encountering what I call muddy concepts where I had to dig through books to try to understand. So to help you as you encounter all these new concepts, I'm going to be posting podcasts that will be uploaded um, to help clarify and get rid of the mud. So let's begin by just talking about drug therapy, just an overview of drug therapy. When used appropriately, drugs can help prevent, reduce, or correct a health problem. Um, Some health problems are minor or temporary. Other health problems are serious, uh, chronic. Some require long-term treatment and monitoring. A drug is any small molecule that changes the body function by working at the chemical and cell levels. There are everyday substances like caffeine and alcohol and nicotine. Um, These are actually substances and they're drugs that that causes cellular change. Some drugs are manufactured from chemicals and others are taken from plants and still others are taken from a person or an animal to be used by another person. For example, insulin can be made in the laboratory or it can be taken from the pancreas of a cow or pig and given to humans. There's no actual plant source of insulin. Some people use the term medication for substances that are used to treat health problems and the term drug for substances that are harmful or can be abused. Just understand that they mean the same thing and drugs or medications can be misused. When we as nurses create a plan of care, um, we call that involves the use of drugs or medications, we call that drug therapy. And when we are looking at drug therapy, there are all kinds of factors that are included. And one of the first things is to identify the specific health problem determine what drug or drugs would be best to help the problem. We want to decide the best delivery method and schedule. We want to make sure that we're given the proper amount of drug, and that will become very important when we talk about narrow therapeutic index drugs. We want to make sure that we're involving the patient and becoming an active participant in his or her drug therapy. It is really important to understand the interactions and mechanisms by which various types of drugs influence body activity and that drugs are prescribed or used to improve some body condition or function. It's important to understand the interactions and mechanisms by which various types of drugs influence that body activity. Drugs are prescribed or used to improve these body functions that we just talked about. But the body actually makes some of its own drugs. The chemicals the body makes are called intrinsic drugs, N-I-N, intrinsic drugs. The insulin is like a perfect example. It's made by the pancreas, and it's a 
great example for an intrinsic drug. Other drugs are made outside the body and must be taken into the body to change the cell or the organ. These drugs we call X, E-X, transic drugs, because the body does not make them. Any drug that we give a patient is going to cause an effect to some tissue or organ in the body. The reason a drug is prescribed is that it has at least one desired effect that we hope improves body function. We call that the intended action or therapeutic response. When we talk about um, maybe a drug that widens or dilates the blood vessels, and in doing so, it lowers blood pressure. So the, this would be a therapeutic response to lower blood pressure, and it would be classified as an antihypertensive. In addition to its intended action or therapeutic response, there may be many minor changes in body function that occur when the drug is taken. These minor effects of a drug on a body, cell, or tissues that are not intended actions are known as side effects. So side effects can be helpful. They may cause problems. Uh, for example, when we're given that high blood pressure medicine for hypertension, when we widen or dilate those blood vessels, it can actually cause effects of dizziness or perhaps um, congestive heart failure, signs and symptoms like ankle swelling. Um, all drugs have at least one intended action and at least one side effect. The safety of any drug is determined by balancing that seriousness of the seriousness of the side effects against the benefit of the therapeutic effect. Do the benefits outweigh the risks? And then we have adverse effects. And adverse effects can be life-threatening. They're usually very serious complications. So there are three drug names, which can be really confusing. Okay, there's the chemical name, the generic name, and the brand name. The chemical name, thank goodness, we do not have to use that um, because it's going to be something like 2-butyl-4-chloride-5-HI-touch-resolve-monopotassium salt. The chemical names are used by the chemists. We don't usually use those, and neither do the patients. The generic name, it's shorter, it's, sim it's more simple, and we usually use the generic name, the pharmacist, the physicians, the nurses. Uh, for example, the generic name for COZAR is Losartan. That's an antihypertensive. Um, usually, the generic name will have uh, parts of the actual name will be the same. It, it will belong to what we call a drug family, LOLs. Those are our beta blockers. They all end in LOL. So as we go along and teach about these drugs, I'll be bringing you back to the generic name so that you can put these into categories into your own um, brain. Brand names are created by each drug company that makes and sells a specific drug. So, yeah, also known as proprietary names or trade names. Okay. Um, Bufferin is aspirin made by Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, then we have St. Joseph's aspirin is made by the McNeil Company. So, it's who is making it. Now, let's talk about drug categories. Okay. Anything whether it's over-the-counter or it's an herbal, it can have a potential to harm a patient if it's not used properly or if it's taken in large quant um, quantities. 
over-the-counter drugs, or we see those written as OTC drugs in the charts. They're usually considered safe self-medications, but they can cause problems, all right? Too many aspirins, you're going to cause an ulcer in your stomach. They can be harmful when the directions for dosage and schedule are not followed. Okay, we also have uh, prescription drugs. They have a greater potential for harm. Things like sedatives, there are uh, things that are have to do with actually addressing a specific disease, like for hypertension, an antihypertensive drug. And then we also have herbal products, which are made from plants that cause a response to the body that is very similar to that of the drug. Okay, so if be very careful, we want to know what kind of medications or drugs are taking. If you have someone that's taken Valorin, that has the same effect of Valium. So we have to be careful if we're going to sedate that, that patient because you're going to have an interaction. So let's go ahead and talk about Pharmacodynamics. So Pharmacodynamics are what the drug does to the body. An important aspect of drug therapy is pharmacodynamics or how the drug works to change body function. So think of this as what the drug does to the body. Drugs affect body function by changing the activity levels of individual cells. And remember that each body cell has at least one job it must perform to make the whole body function correctly. The job that any cell performs can be slowed, stopped, sped up when the cell is exposed to a specific drug. Exactly how a drug changes the activity of a cell is its mechanism of action. Most cells have receptors that control that their activity. The actual cells or tissues that are affected by that mechanism of action or intended action of the drug are known as target tissues. So let's talk about receptors. So when we talk about receptors, we are talking about places on or in a cell where a drug can attach itself, bind, and control that cell activity. This way, the receptor acts as like an ignition site for the cell's motor. When the right key or drug is placed into the ignition receptor and turned on, the cell motor starts and the cell performs its special job better or faster. The right key for the ignition can be either an in-transit drug, okay, maybe it's adrenaline or epinephrine made by the adrenal glands, or an extrinsic drug such as synthetic epinephrine. Chemically, chemically epinephrine is almost identical to human adrenaline. When the adrenal glands make and release adrenaline, it binds to the receptor sites on the heart muscles the cells. It makes those cells contract more strongly and rapidly. This action causes an increased heart rate and a higher blood pressure. When epinephrine is injected into a person, it binds to those same adrenaline receptors on the heart muscle cells and causes the same effects that adrenaline does. Okay. So 
Receptors are physical places on or in cells that combine with and respond to naturally occurring body chemicals. The purpose is to control cell activity and meet the body needs. Now, not to make it complicated, but a cell can have more than one type of receptor. So different drugs can affect the same cell in different ways. A cell can respond to a drug by changing its activity only when the proper drug fits into the receptor. If the wrong drug attempts to bind to the receptor, it will not activate the receptor. Think of this as using the wrong key in a car ignition that will not start the motor. So Chevy keys, they used to, you know, I'm thinking about a regular key now because I know everybody has like a clicker, but in the old days, Chevy keys were all the same. Every, every Chevy key would fit into a Chevy truck. Let's say it's a Chevy truck. However, only one key could actually turn the ignition on. So think of it like that. So a cell can respond to a drug by increasing its activity only when the drug fits into the receptor of the cell. So many types of drugs work through cell receptors and these receptors can be on the surface of a cell or they can actually be inside the cell. A cell with a receptor for a specific drug is known as the target for that drug. For example, the target of morphine is most brain cells or neurons that perceive pain. It works on the pain pathway. Drug types that work by affecting cell receptors include opiate pain drugs. We have drugs for high blood pressure. We have diuretics. We have insulin. We have antihistamines, anti-inflammatory drugs. Oh my gosh. And that's only to name a few. Okay. So let's talk by breaking this down into the different types of receptors and the actions. And we're going to be using these terms over and over again as we continue on and we talk about the particular drugs. But let's go ahead and start by talking about receptor agonists. So receptor agonist. So what happens when we give somebody a medication? I mean, how does it all happen? What, what how, how does it work? When an extrinsic drug binds to the receptor of a cell and causes the same response that an intrinsic drug does, the extrinsic drug is called a receptor agonist because it is the right key to turn on that cell's ignition. Extrinsic drugs that are agonists have the same effect as the body's own hormones or natural substances also known as intrinsic drugs, and they activate or turn on a specific receptor type in or on a cell. Agonist drugs must interact with the correct receptor for the drug to change the activity of the cell. Some agonist drugs change this activity to the same degree that the intrinsic drug does. Insulin, we think about insulin insulin made by the pancreas and then the synthetic insulin that we give it's going to those drugs that it, the agonist drug of insulin is going to change the cell the same as the intrinsic drug it's going to lower blood sugar other agonist drugs work but not quite as well as the intrinsic drug while then there's other agonist drugs that work more powerfully than intrinsic drugs the agonist drug strength 
Okay, so how strong that drug is determined by how tightly the drug binds to the receptor and how long it stays bound. The more tightly bound a drug is to a receptor and the longer it stays attached, the stronger the effect of the drug on the activity of the cell. For example, when we're talking about hydromorphone or Dilaudid, this is an opiate agonist that binds to the opiate receptor better than morphine does. So as a result, hydromorphone provides longer pain relief at lower doses than morphine. It is a stronger drug. So the effectiveness of an agonist drug depends on how tightly and how long it is bound to the receptor. And there are factors that affect this binding, and we're going to talk about that. We also have receptor antagonists. So we talk about blockers. Um, we talk about inhibitors, we're talking about antagonists. But sometimes the goal of drug therapy is to actually slow the activity of a, slow, a cell down. Okay, One way drugs can do this is by blocking the receptors of the cell so that the intrinsic drug cannot bind and activate the receptor. And an intrinsic drug that works by blocking the receptor cell is called a receptor antagonist. So it is similar enough, this agonist drug is similar enough in its shape to the intrinsic drug, so it, it will bind to the receptor, but not tightly enough or correctly enough to activate it. So it's like putting that Chevy truck key in the ignition and turning it. Yeah, if it's in the ignition, it's going to block. So there's your blocking, but it cannot activate it or turn it on. It stops activation. So remember. As long as the wrong key is in the ignition slot, the correct key cannot be placed in the slot and the car cannot run when you're using the whole key analogy. The agonist competes with intensive drugs for the receptor sites, blocks the receptors and slows or stops the activity of a, a cell down. Antagonists have effects that are opposite of agonists. Just remember that. Okay, so agonists are drugs that act like naturally occurring drugs, and turn on receptors when they bind. They speed up cell action. Antagonists bind to receptors but block them or slow cell action. Receptors in general are sites of direct action for many cells. The final cell action when a drug binds to its receptor depends on both the nature of the drug whether it's an agonist or an antagonist, and the nature of the receptor, okay? So sometimes you need to know the mechanism of action for each drug to understand how its intended action and side effects happen. For example, when a person uses an epinephrine inhaler to widen lung airways and breathe more easily, that's the intended action, but the side effects are, unfortunately, because it's epinephrine, there's a rapid increase in heart rate and higher blood pressure. Very transient, but there is a side effect that comes with that. That's just a quick example. Physiological effects are like the outcome of the mechanism of action. That's what a physiological effect is, okay? Usually this effect can be felt by the patient or we can measure it or it's observed by us, 
For example, a drug that binds to the airway and dilates the airways has the physiological effect of improving airflow in the airways, right? So this improved airflow leads to better gas exchange. The patient says, oh, I can feel so much better now. I can breathe better. And you, the nurse, observe an Im improvement in those oxygen saturations or SpO2s. So both expected and unexpected patient responses are part of physiological effects. So these include intended action, side effects, and then adverse effects. And we're going to talk about these three um, in, in the next couple of minutes. Two specific types of adverse effects are allergic responses and idiosyncratic responses, or just personal responses to um, certain drugs. Remember, the intended actions or our therapeutic responses are the desired effect that improves body function, and usually it's the reason a drug is prescribed. Side effects. Drug side effects are one or more effects on body cells or tissues that are not the intended action of the drug therapy. All drugs have side effects. Generally, the side effects are most common, mild changes that occur in at least 10% of patients receiving a drug. Okay, These effects are expected but do not occur in all patients. Many are related to the mechanism of action. They're temporary. They resolve. I will tell you that most people that take penicillin for more than five days develop diarrhea. This is not an adverse effect. Now, it can lead to dehydration and all these other things in, a, in an immune compromised or, or one of our senior patients. But for the most part, diarrhea is just, this becomes a side effect. It usually stops within two to three days after we discontinue the drug. Examples of side effects are how about constipation when, when you're using opioid analgesics. It can become an adverse effect if you get a bowel obstruction, so it can lead to these different things. Um, sexual disinterest or impotency when you use certain antidepressants or antihypertensive. Drowsiness with the use of certain antihistamines or how about that, you know, that decreased platelet aggregation or blood clotting with, with the use of aspirin. These are side effects, okay? Adverse effects are harmful. It's more harmful than a side effect, severe, and have the potential to damage tissue or cause a serious health problem. It can also be referred to, and we say this often when we're talking about digoxin or dilantin, there are toxic effects or toxicities. Often these effects occur with higher doses or and they're usually rare when the patient's taken a normal dose. Although adverse effects are not common, it's important to know that many types of ADRs, that's what we call them, ADRs, and their signs and symptoms may occur with the specific drug and are identified and managed early. So examples of like an adverse effect is when people take the statin drugs for cholesterol, um, muscle breakdown can become a problem. And you get lung fibrosis if you use amiodarone, which is a cardiac drug over a long period of time. This is for abnormal heart rhythms. Sometimes we can get um, a pseudomembrous colitis when we use some of our, our drugs such as amoxicillin or vancomycin. And then you're going to hear the Steven Johnson syndrome. It's this rare and severe skin reaction, but you'd be surprised at how many drugs that there is the Steven Johnson syndrome. These are adverse effects. And they have to um, be discontinued if they happen. Um, doctor needs to be called and um, other actions taken. So remember.
And ADR is rare, but it's serious and has the potential to damage organs or cause toxicities. Okay. Usually when a patient has an ADR, we stop the drug. That is not the same with side effects. We may discontinue a drug with a side effect and then get them back on the drug and treat the side effects. So besides the mechanism of action and how a drug works, you also need to consider before you administer any drug to a patient is whether or not that drug has a black box warning. So a black box warning, uh, also called box warnings, are required by the USD Food and Drug Administration for certain medications that carry serious safety risks, okay? So these warnings are there to communicate potential rare but dangerous side effects. They're still being used, um, so you want to stop and consider if there's another drug that can be used. Do the benefits of using this drug that has a black box warning outweigh the risks that are associated with it? as the nurse wrapping up pharmacodynamics here it is your job you are the last checkpoint to ask the patient ask the family member adverse reaction allergic reaction any personal individual idiosyncratic reactions that have happened before you give a drug okay so let's go on and talk about pharmacokinetics or how the body uses and changes the drug. Most drugs must enter the body to produce their intended action. So once a drug enters a living human body, the body then exerts its effect on the drug. And this process is known as pharmacokinetics. We are going to talk about ADME, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. After absorption, the drug is affecting the body. At the same time, the body is affecting the drug. Okay, The body affects a drug by changing the structure of the drug so it can be either inactivated or eliminated from the body. This is processing of drugs, pharmacokinetics. So a drug must enter the body. and reach a high enough constant level in the blood or target tissue to produce the intended action. That response that we're looking for again. The lowest blood level needed in order to get that intended action is known as a MEC, M-E-C, or minimum effective concentration. If the body eliminates drug faster than it enters the body, then the drug level is not, at any given time, it's not gonna be great enough to produce what we want it to do or the intended action. If the body eliminates the drug more slowly than it enters the body, then what's gonna happen? The opposite, the drug level could become high enough to cause more serious side effects, possible adverse effects, toxicities. For a drug to really do its job and produce those intended actions without causing harm to the patient, its level in the blood has to be maintained by balancing drug entry with drug elimination. This balance is known as a steady state drug level. It keeps the amount of drug in the body high enough to produce the intended action continuously. And the body processes drugs through the stages of absorption, 
distribution, metabolism, and elimination. Steady state will become more important when we talk about half-life. How long a drug remains in the blood at that MEC is its duration of action. So the duration of action is, it's like a way to describe the potency of a drug. Drug potency is the strength of intended action produced at a given dose, right? So drugs that have higher potency need lower doses to produce an intended action. Makes sense. And drugs that have less potent require higher doses to produce the same intended action. Drugs that have higher potency need lower doses to produce an intended action, and drugs that are less potent require higher doses to produce the same intended action. Let's talk about absorption. When drugs come in contact with their target cells to cause that change in the cell activity, um, like an, an extended drug that enters the body and gets into the bloodstream, it binds their target cells. The movement of a drug from outside of the body into the bloodstream is called absorption. The amount of a drug dose that actually reaches the blood is called bioavailability. If an entire drug dose reaches the bloodstream, its bioavailability is 100%. Right. So when only part of a drug and we're going to talk about this when we talk about um, the liver gets into the blood, that drug is less than 100% bioavailable. So there are many, many ways that the drug enters our body. There's the percutaneous route. That means drugs that enter the skin through, I mean, drugs entered through skin or mucous membranes. There's an enteral route, which refers to the GI tract. There's the parental route, which means the drugs injected into the body. Um, and how fast they actually are uh, work depends on the drug entry routes. Drugs are prepared by the manufacturer and depending on their intended routes. For example, drugs given by the parental route must be sterile, but those given by the enteral route don't need only to be clean. Some drugs are prepared for the for enteral route or GI tract may have a special coating like an enteric coating on an aspirin. And that prevents the actual harmful effects of aspirin without an enteric coating breaking down the stomach lining. And that can produce peptic ulcer disease. We're not going to give drugs that are prepared by one route, by another route, okay? So if it's prepared for IM, we're gonna give it IM, not IV. Percutaneous route is the movement of the drug from the outside of the body, through the inside of the body, through the skin or the mucous membranes, okay? So um, there's this transdermal delivery, you've heard of the transdermal patches, okay? There's nitroglycerin, fentanyl, all kinds of different um, reasons that we use patches. Um, some drugs can be given through the mucous membranes of the mouth, their nose, the lungs, uh, the rectum um, vaginal. Um, and mucous membranes have many blood vessels close to the surface, making movement of the drug through the membranes into the bloodstream rapid and easy. Um, nitroglycerin is a great example of a sublingual. Under the tongue, it's absorbed. There's no first pass hepatic effect, which we're going to talk about when we talk about the liver. Um, so the entire drug is available. So that would be 100% bioavailability. Um, 
So remember that mucous membranes have many blood vessels close to the surface. It's why when you bite your tongue or you bite the inside of your mouth, also why you bleed so much, right? And this actually makes movement of the drug through these membranes and into the bloodstream pretty darn rapid. Okay. Enteral route is the GI track, okay, and that most drugs that can be taken by mouth can also be placed directly into the stomach or intestine through a tube, like a G-tube. So it also includes those. Or these oral drugs have the least predictable absorption pattern. If there's food in the stomach, if there's other things going on in the body, then it's less predictable. Drugs given by mouth usually require higher doses than the same drugs when given IV because of the absorptions, because the absorption of oral drugs is affected by anything occurring in that stomach and intestine. So if you have diarrhea, you're going to have drugs that move more quickly through the intestines and they're eliminated rather than absorbed. So that's just one example. Okay. Vomiting, same way. So parental route uh, involves giving drugs by injection. So it bypasses the intestinal tract and the other organs of digestion, such as the liver, placing drugs more directly into the blood or to the target cells. Okay. The most rapid drug entry routes are going to be interarterial okay, or IV percutaneous. So distribution. Let's talk about distribution. Once the drugs are in the blood, the blood, then what happens? They got to be distributed to their target tissues where they're supposed to, you know, perform this intended action. Most drugs do not exert their mechanisms of action while in the blood. The bloodstream is just the roadway. So when I think of distribution, I think of it as the roadway used by the body to get the drug to its target cell. Drugs can be distributed or spread to different body areas, but distribution of a drug is the extent that a drug spreads into the three specific compartments, the bloodstream or blood volume, sometimes we also call that the plasma volume, this is the first compartment, and this area is made up of the spaces in the arteries and the veins and the capillaries. The second compartment includes both blood volume and then the watery spaces between all the blood cells, also known as interstitial space. The third drug compartment is the largest, including blood volume, the watery spaces between the cells or that interstitial space and the space inside the cells or intracellular space. So how well a drug is distributed is determined by the size and the chemical nature of the drug. Small drugs may have only a few molecules or parts, and smaller drugs are able to fit through cell channels, have wider distribution than larger drugs. Some large drugs bind to proteins in the blood. These drugs do not touch or enter other cells. They just exert their effect only on the cells in the blood. So an example of this would be like an antibiotic that stays in the blood and affects only the microorganisms that are also in the blood. Drugs that are distributed only to the blood volume are eliminated more rapidly than those that are distributed more widely. Some places in the body are more difficult for drugs to enter, such as the brain, the eye, um, the actual inside the eye and sinuses, the prostate gland. And in addition, some body conditions can reduce the drug distribution, such as when one of our, our patients are dehydrated. Okay, so they have little water and they have low blood pressure or hypotension. And if a, what about if a person's taken more than one drug? The drugs can interact, meaning that the presence of one drug can change the distribution of another drug. 
okay, this issue is a type of drug interaction and has to be considered when people, when patients are taking more than one drug. So drug distribution and activity are reduced in a patient who's dehydrated or has very low blood pressure. All right. Metabolism. Metabolism. ADM, M, metabolism. Because any drug that enters the body is considered a foreign substance, the body takes steps to inactivate and eliminate it. The body's like so darn smart, okay? Before most drugs can be eliminated, they have to first be metabolized. So metabolism is a chemical reaction in the body that changes the chemical shape and then the content of the drug. Usually the changing of a drug by the body inactivates the drug and then it makes it easier to eliminate. A few drugs are actually activated by body metabolism. Therefore, they can exert their effects and then are re-metabolized or reprocessed. Let's just um, look at an example of what I'm talking about because that sounded like oh, crazy stuff there. A comparison um, of use of opioid drugs such as morphine and codeine. This is a clinical example of how metabolism works for drug elimination and, and activation. When a patient receives morphine for pain management, it is distributed throughout the body, including the brain, right? It goes to the brain, it binds to the opioid receptor sites to reduce, whoop, there's that receptor site again, it's an agonist, to reduce the patient's perception of pain. At the same time, the liver inactivates the morphine through metabolism and readies it for elimination. That's why the effects of morphine wear off in a few hours and another dose of the drug then needs to be given for the patient to remain comfortable. Codeine is another opioid drug given for pain. However, when codeine is first like taken into the body, it's not active. It doesn't bind to the opioid receptors in the brain. It has to first be activated by metabolism and converted to morphine before it can relieve pain. Once the conversion takes place, the coding, which is now morphine, binds to the receptor sites, the opioid receptor sites in the brain, and then it reduces the pain perception. When metabolized, codeine, now morphine, is remetabolized and it is ready to be eliminated from the body. So the fact that codeine first has to be activated by metabolism before it can work as a pain reliever explains why morphine relieves pain faster than codeine. So remember, Metabolism changes the chemical structure of drugs. It can activate drugs, inactivate them, and prepare them for elimination. Okay, Drugs can be metabolized to different degrees by different body tissues. The organs and cells most involved in drug metabolism are in the liver, the kidneys, the lungs, and the white blood cells. All these tissues contain like these special enzymes that break down and change the chemicals in the drugs. Some factors that also that can determine how like well drugs are metabolized could have something to do with genetic differences between people. Uh, whether or not someone's been exposed to that specific drug or similar drug before, or what about how healthy their liver is or their kidneys are. Some people have genetic differences that allow them to make more enzymes used in drug metabolism. That means these people need higher than average doses of drugs for the drugs to work as well. It may also need to take the drugs more often to keep that steady state level we were talking about. 
So other other people have genetic differences that reduce the amount of enzymes they make for drug metabolism. These people need lower doses for the same effect compared with the average person. And the Asians, the Asian population are what we call slow facilitators. You have to be very careful. They don't take a lot of medication. The liver and kidneys are the most important organs for drug metabolism. If a patient has a problem with either the liver or the kidneys, drugs may be metabolized slowly and uh, or they re they remain active longer in the system, which then can, can lead to toxicity, right? In this situation, um, we have to be careful because high levels of drugs can quickly build up in the patient and then these lead to those not so pleasant toxic side effects, All right? Elimination. Eliminations, this removal of drugs from the body, eliminate. It's accomplished by certain body systems, although many body systems eliminate drugs to some degree. The most active routes for drug elimination are the intestinal tract, the kidneys, and the lungs. Drugs leave the body in the feces, urine, exhaled air, sweat, tears, saliva, and breast milk. Drugs metabolized by the liver are sent to either the intestinal tract of the blood and then to the kidney for elimination. Even drugs given parentally can be eliminated through the intestinal tract. So when a drug is given orally, some of the drug is metabolized quickly by the liver and rapidly eliminated from the body. This rapid inactivation and elimination, this is only with oral now, and or drugs is called that first pass effect. Okay, so and for this reason, there's going to be less drug available, less bioavailability, and the dosage is higher usually compared with the same drug given IV because you're going to lose drug in that last path, that first pass effect. Drugs that are dissolved in the blood may leave the body in urine. In, in urine. The drugs may change the color or smell of the urine. So these are the things that we may all, you know, remember when you're assessing anything urine being one of them, smell, color, odor. A few types of drugs are metabolized and eliminated through the lungs and leave the body in exhaled air. Okay, lots of our vaporized gases that we used in um, anesthesia, that's how they're eliminated through the lungs. Okay. Also, alcohol um, turns into gases, and that's why we have, when we measure blood alcohol, how do we do it? Through a breathalyzer. Um, and just as for metabolism, the liver and kidneys are the most important organs for drug elimination. The liver metabolizes the drug to make it ready for elimination, which often is performed by the kidney. So those guys work really hard in this whole process. If a patient has a problem with either of these, drugs may take a longer time to get out of the body or they could build up again, like we talked about earlier, toxic levels. So liver damage is um, going to, you're going to move this is referred to as hepatotoxicity and kidney damage is nephrotoxicity. So drugs that cause kidney damage are called kidney toxic or renal toxic or nephrotoxic and drugs that cause liver damage are called liver toxic or hepatotoxic. Okay. Half-life. Let's talk about half-life. You're going to have to do one of these on your exam. So let's talk about it. The half-life of a drug is the time span needed for one half, that's where we get half, one half of a single drug dose given to a patient to be eliminated. When multiple doses are given over time, the half-life for the total dosage also can be calculated. So let's just do this 
Let's do an example. Let's talk about Aleve, my favorite anti-inflammatory drug, also known as naproxen. It has a half-life of 12 hours. So let's say the first dose of the drug was 220 milligrams. 12 hours after the drug was given, half of the drug remains in the body. Half-life of 12 hours. So that means 110 milligrams of the drug remains in the body. All right. Half of that remaining 110 is eliminated in the next 12 hours. So then... 24 hours after the first dose, how much do you have left? Yes, half of 110 would be 55. So 55 milligrams of the drug remains in the, the patient's body after 25, 24 hours, all right? So if you think about this, if you only receive a single dose of a leave, so you have a wicked headache, took an leave, 220 milligram dose, nothing, you don't take any more again. The half-life at 12 hours would be 110. The half-life at, um, at another 12 hours, 24 hours, would be half of that, 55. But it would take, if you go and do that all the way down to zero, almost 48 hours for you to completely eliminate the drug. The drug is considered eliminated when less than 10% of the drug remains, which would be between 36 and 48 hours, if we were going to use that example. So for most drug, at least five half-lives after the last dose are needed to eliminate the drug. So to wrap up this crazy subject, the half-life of a drug is related to how fast it's eliminated. Drugs that are eliminated rapidly have a short half-life. Drugs eliminated slowly have a long half-life. The half-life of any drug is calculated based on research. And half-life is usually determined how much drugs should be prescribed and how often it should be taken to get it at a steady state, okay? Now, Let's talk about loading dose. So when we talk about loading dose, uh, this is when a first large dose is given. And we do this to get the blood level up to a minimum effective um, concentration as fast as possible. So, and we do that to, you know, we want to get it to a therapeutic level because usually this is something that we're given to treat something very serious or maybe a loading dose of dilantin to get rid of seizures. Once the, um, the minimum effective concentration is achieved, all the other doses can be smaller. So start with that large, large dose and then you'll start getting it over like a period of time. An example would be um, a drug that's usually prescribed with a high loading dose and a maintenance dose is Amakin. It's an antibiotic with a long half-life, so it's only prescribed for serious life-threatening infections. When lo So loading doses are often used for drugs that have a long half-life. But the reason we give them is to get the um, patient's levels to the ther therapeutic range to address whatever's going on. Lots of drugs we do loading doses with. Peaks and troughs um, describe that relationship between the actual dose of the drug that we give and then the blood drug level over time. The peak is the maximum blood drug level. 
it's like the top of the mountain. And when we go through lecture, I have pictures. And the trough is the lowest or the minimal blood drug level. It's like the bottom of a water trough for animals, okay? So what we want to have our drugs is in a range in the blood that allows the intended actions to occur. So we don't want them too high, it becomes toxic. Okay, so that would be your mech. And then we don't want them too low because then the drug level um, doesn't do what it's supposed to do, the intended actions. All right. When patients have like no severe health problems, you know how often is it that you get patient with just one thing or unusual reactions to drug and its metabolism, the peaks and troughs of a specific drug are already known. They've already been worked out. Um, it's the variability of the patients that always changes that. So lifespan considerations when you're talking about pharmacology and pharmacogenetics and pharmacokinetics is let's talk about those little people, okay? Size. Children are smaller than most adults, and most drugs are given in smaller doses in proportion to the child's size, especially weight. So some drugs are prescribed in milligrams per kilogram. Some prescribed drug doses are based on body surface or BSA, the body surface area, and they're calculated in milligrams per kilogram. Um, it is very important that you know that one kilogram is equal to 2.2 pounds. And, and so remember that a person always weighs fewer kilograms than pounds. When we're correctly calculating drug dosages for children um, and you know, to prevent um, drug overdoses, we have all these rules that we follow. We always compare the drug dose prescribed for an infant and a child with the recommended dose of the child's size. We question any drug prescription. We double check drug dosages. We um, we also check for drugs that have may have a specific type or effect or response. Um, that is different in adults. An example, this is called a paradoxal effect. So an example of that would be um, Benadryl in an adult. Mostly that would put a, could cause drowsiness in an adult, but sometimes it can have the exact opposite reaction when given to a child. Okay, so children may have completely different responses to a drug than an adult would have at the same drug. So we have to be careful. Another thing that affects um, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics is organ health. The health of the organ, like in drug distribution, we know that that has to do with your blood volume in your blood. That's the roadway getting things distributed, hypotension, all the different things that would involve uh, low perfusion would affect distribution, metabolism, your liver, your kidneys, your lungs, elimination. So all of these, especially the liver and the kidneys, um, are going to be uh, very important. Also, along with physical immaturity and age-related changes, because the very young and the very old, um, they get toxic more easy because they have immature organs, especially under the first year in our, in our children. They have immature livers immature kidneys and so therefore their dosages have to be calculated based on their weight you have to be very very careful it's different in that in a healthy person that has a healthy liver in our seniors again we have a decrease in gfr function in the in the renals we want to be very careful we want to be looking at bun and creatinine in these patients for many of the 
the medications that we give because we already know just age-related, they have significant changes in their renal that can cause toxicity. So there's all kinds of different things that we need to worry about. Overall, just understand with our young or our pediatric that drug metabolism in children varies depending on the age and the organ. So a premature infant or a newborn may have a slower rate of metabolism, okay, because they don't have mature organs. They don't have the enzyme system of the liver may not be fully activated yet. Toddlers, preschool children, then our school-age kids and adolescents usually have a higher rate of metabolism than adults. See, so you have to, you have to consider all that. Considerations for our older adults, um, some of them have serious liver damage. That makes drug metabolism and elimination slower. They may, they may be in good health and still have reduced liver function just because of the aging process. And that goes the same for the kidneys. Okay, so kidneys are so important in metabolism and especially elimination, right? So healthy kidneys, important for drug elimination and preventing toxic levels. And the last population, a special population that we're gonna talk about for this lecture is are talking about our pregnancy population okay so nearly every organ forms in nine months before birth okay but certain trimesters there's more things going on than others every part every, every trimester is important um during pregnancy just general the mother's bloodstream is separate from the unborn baby's bloodstream by the placenta however that placenta is not perfect you know it's not a perfect barrier and some drugs actually cross the placenta and then that affects the unborn baby all right so although not all drugs taken during pregnancy have harmful effects on the fetus um, regardless we do not usually recommend uh over-the-counter drugs or prescribed drugs, any drugs taken during pregnancy unless it's clearly needed. And again, we go back to when the benefits outweigh the risk, okay? So really you can say no prescribed or, or over-the-counter drug is considered to be completely safe to take during pregnancy. Drugs that cause birth defects are called tetragenic or tetragens. And some drugs are more tetragenic than others. And even one dose can cause a severe birth defect. Other drugs are less tetragenic and require either many doses or very high doses to cause even a minor birth defect. And not all pregnant women who take a tetragenic uh, drug during pregnancy have a baby with birth defects, but the risk for birth defects is higher. Okay, so usually drugs are avoided during pregnancy. However, certain health problems may need to be managed with drug therapy. The FDA has guidelines that we follow that gives us information as prescribers, as nurses. That's um, in the section of a drug package insert, um, also in our nurses drug guide, and also a PDR. Um, and they have, um, we have put this special populations into categories. So pregnancy categories are A, B, C, D, and X. X would be tatable, all right? So at which the risk for birth defects or adverse pregnancy incomes have no apparent increased risk would be A. You get an A, okay? Um, risk all the way to X. And X is increased risk greatly. Increased risk would be a category X. You would never give a category X to a pregnant woman, right? So it's more of a risk classification, a risk to the fetus, risk to the pregnant woman. 
before administering any prescribed drug, ask any female patient between the ages of 10 or 60 years, I ask if they menstruate. Um, but even if they menstruate, they might be the first month, you don't even know. So I, ages 10 to 60 years, if they're pregnant, if they're likely to become pregnant or if they're breastfeeding. And speaking of breastfeeding, some of the drugs that we take in but when we're breastfeeding, can cross into the milk, and then, of course, the baby ingests it. The effects of the drugs on the baby are the same as the mother. So, for example, lipid-lowering drugs. So if we add, like, our um, a mom on a high cholesterol, an anti-cholesterol drug, like, let's say, um, um, one of the statins taken by a breastfeeding woman will lower the infant's blood lipid levels. So... Although the mother may need to lower her lipid levels, it doesn't mean the infant does. So we have to be really um, be careful. Uh, low lipid levels in a baby can cause poor brain development and um, delays, some severe delays. We want to be careful when a breastfeeding woman has an infection. Usually the infant does not. However, the antibiotic the mother takes can enter the breast milk and affect the, the in, infant. Okay, so. We want, before a drug is selected and prescribed for a breastfeeding woman, the effects on the infant have to be considered. Okay. Um, there's some recommendations. You're going to learn about this in transitions or semester three, where there are like, you know, recommended methods of reducing infant exposure to drugs during breastfeeding. Maybe you put the baby on breast milk. Maybe you'd maintain your milk supply by pumping your breast on a regular schedule and then discarding a pumped milk. Um, nurse your baby right before you take the next dose of the drug. You want to drink plenty of liquids and you want to take the drug just before the baby's longest sleep period if you have to take medications. The last thing that I'm going to end with, because this has been an hour of our week one podcast, Nurse 365, My Little Wildcats, is there are now eight rights of given drugs. I know you talk about six and seven, but really there are eight, right patient, right drug, right dose, right route, right time, right documentation, right diagnosis, and right response. If you follow these eight rights of drug administration, you will have less of the possibility of having an adverse event with medication errors. Well, my baby nurses, my little wildcats, this is the end of our week one podcast on pharmacology, pharmacodynamics, and pharmacokinetics. Stay tuned for week two. We're going to be talking about the endocrine system. Woo woo! Um, remember, save one life, you're a hero. Save 100 lives, you're a nurse. And that's where we're going. See you soon. This is Dr. D signing out. This is Fenway's world, and we're living in it. Yep, I hear you.